sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing new uh, uh, scorching temperatures in California, what that means in terms of climate change. Also going to be touching on the importance of peace talks and the prospects for that uh, within the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Tina Landis, an organizer and author of the book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tina, uh, here recently, the the capital city of California, Sacramento, recorded its hottest day ever on record at 116 degrees, with many other towns and cities also seeing their highest ever um, uh, uh, recorded temperature. And this also uh, fueled wildfires across the state, something that has been that has become increasingly common in California with 14 large fires in total that uh, uh, claimed the lives of four people just over uh, the recent weekend. And, you know, this uh, uh, increase in temperature, of course, also uh, brings with it an increase of energy consumption within the state, putting a strain on California's electrical system. It's just so much that uh, is uh, sort of happening here that I think sort of highlights uh, uh, the kind of uh, snowball effect that uh, climate catastrophe actually has. And I know you're based there uh, in California, Tina. And I was just wondering how it's all striking you at this point. Yeah. So we're sort of at the tail end of a record-breaking heat wave. It's been 10 days as of today, um, which is the hottest and longest heat wave in California history. And each year, this happens more, right? The frequency of heat waves, the duration of them, and the the temperatures um, are rising each year with climate change. Um, And it's yeah, we, we averted we averted these grid failures barely. Um, some areas did lose electricity for a few hours, but overall the state um, got through it. But you know, our failing infrastructure is not you know it's not climate resilient, and this is not just California; it's the entire U.S. Right? There's just no money put into keeping our infrastructure strong and climate resilient, and. Um, you know, there could have been millions of people without power during these triple digit heat waves, which is really life threatening. You know, it's like for this many days, 10 days in a row, when people have nowhere to cool off, it's very, very dangerous. Um, but, you know, the state and the country really just doesn't prioritize people because it's capitalism. Right. Um, but, yeah, we're going to see these these heat waves continuing to get worse if if something isn't done about to really address climate change, the root cause of climate change, and to really restore our planet, our ecosystems to really cool the, the climate. Um, you know, these, these systems, these high-pressure systems that are causing heat waves, as well as low-pressure systems that are causing the heavy rains are, you know, as the climate warms, as the atmosphere warms, the jet stream is weakening, which means these systems just, like, sit over areas for a very long period of time. So what we saw this last 10 days is this heat dome over the western part of the U.S., particularly California, that just didn't. So there's no winds and just high, high temperatures, um, which are, like you said, causing these fires, too. And now we're seeing this tropical storm 
coming up the coast, it hit Mexico already. I haven't read the latest on the damage there, but it's expected to dump a, a year's worth of rain on Southern California tomorrow, starting today and tomorrow, and also high, high winds. Um, and then at the same time in Northern California, we have the risk of dry lightning. We're not going to get any of the moisture, but we're going to see dry lightning, which is catastrophic in relation to fires. That's what happened in 2020 when we had the worst fire season in history was because of a dry lightning storm that ignited hundreds of fires within 72 hours around the state. So it's, it's a very dangerous situation. And there's just no protections for people. I mean, there's very little, you know, there's evacuation notices. There's encouragement to, you know, use less energy so the power grid doesn't fail. But there's really no long-term plan of how to address this, you know. And same, like, agriculture uses so much water. We're in this, you know, 20-year drought, mega drought in California. There's no plan to actually really address the root cause of these, all these problems that are impacting people on the ground. Yeah, and real quick, when you talk about dry lightning, what is that exactly, just for our listeners who might not know? Yeah, so it's basically you get the, the, the lightning storm without the rain. So it's like, yeah, East Coast, you probably don't have this very much, but yeah, you just aren't getting the rain. You're only getting the, the, the lightning happening. So it's, it's very, very dangerous. And I'm just curious, what have we seen any response from the uh, state government in California to try to, uh, you know, address or make some kind of um, uh, resources available in the midst of this extreme heat? Uh, what does that look like? You know, there's a assembly bill that passed a few years back, I believe it was 2019, to put funding into clean air centers throughout the state. But it was very slow to get going because it's up to local municipalities to then use that funding and make it happen and set up the, the clean air centers for people to go to. And, um, you know, in the Bay Area, they're just starting to roll them out after, you know, many, many years, but they're not even set up yet. So it's like, the, the, yeah, clean air centers and they're also cooling centers, right? So when it's high heat and, and smoky um, from wildfires, people can go there, but it's not enough. And like so many folks work outside, right? immigrant farm workers, they have to work outside regardless, right? Landscapers, road, you know, road repair workers, all these, you know, very working class jobs that they don't have a choice but to be outside during the day or other people who can't take the day off and go to a air center, right? Uh, or a cooling center. And so many people, you know, low income folks, especially, you know, here in the San Francisco Bay Area don't have air conditioning because historically it's never been hot enough to require air conditioning. So in these conditions, it's like, there's just so many people who have no access to keep cool and they can't or they can't get to a place that's cool. And it's, yeah, all these things that, that under capitalism, it, it really doesn't address, you know, how it doesn't look at how to really take care of people. It, it's the well-being of the population. It's really up to you as an individual to, to keep yourself safe. Um, you know, they throw crumbs, they set up some some mechanisms to, to help people, but it's just inadequate, especially facing just this increase in climate catastrophe that we're seeing, just one thing after the other, right? Um, and it's really leaving so many people behind. And, and you know, there's estimated 1,300 to 1,500 heat-related deaths in the U.S. And this is prior to these increasing heat waves, right? So it's, much, it's probably much, much higher than that. And, you know, so many people are just left behind in the system. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was thinking about what you mentioned a moment ago, Tina, in terms of how, 
You know, it, it's not like uh, the impacts of climate catastrophe sort of happen one at a time. They all sort of uh, hit uh, within pretty close of each other. I mean, speaking of this heat wave in um, uh, uh, California, I think we've also we've seen the drying of uh, the Colorado River and all these sorts of things. You mentioned uh, tropical storms. So it's all of these issues with the climate that are, are happening and hitting people all at once, not only because of the uh, uh, machinations of the capitalist system, but also uh, I would say because there's, uh, I mean, obviously the system itself is directly connected to what creates the problem. But on top of that, a refusal to actually try to address uh, the issue in a critical way uh, sort of only makes it worse. And so it seems that all of these uh, different issues with the weather will only intensify and become more frequent uh, as long as there's no real response or more importantly, no real change to the system that uh, helped to exacerbate this issue in the first place. You know what I mean? Like when we look at the issue of agribusiness and all these sorts of things. And, and I feel like these sorts of companies that exacerbate climate change still enjoy a good bit of protection legally, even as uh, this country claims to be trying to address climate change in some kind of way. And so it, it just sort of shows, I think, Tina, that, I mean, regardless of the different bits of legislation that came out or whatever other measures that um, uh, um, are brought up that basically just paint around the edges. I mean, as long as the basic systemic root of climate change remains unchallenged, well, then the issue itself won't see any real shift. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. The courts, the government, it all upholds the, you know, the right of corporations to profit above all else, you know, with tweaking things around the edges to maybe look them a little more green or some protections for people, but not really fundamentally changing the business as usual economic system, which is the cause of climate change. You know, the continuing plundering of the planet, the, you know, overproduction of goods, the, you know, wars of aggression around the world you know, instigated by imperialist countries, you know, just this ongoing endless growth system of capitalism is not sustainable. And yeah, there's, there's, there's so much that could be done, but it needs to be done in a real way, in a meaningful, comprehensive way. Um, we have the resources to do it, especially in the wealthier countries. Right. Um, but there's, yeah, there's just not the political will. And, and like I said, the capitalist system itself is the barrier to these changes that need to happen. I mean, it needs to be a truly a transformation of how we live on this planet. And it would really be, you know, a better life for most of the working class in this country, right? Because, you know, we'd, we'd all have more access to healthy food and a healthy environment and green cities and all these things. Um, but but there's just no yeah the the system itself won't allow that to happen and the the ruling class won't allow it to happen so they do things like you know passing this the inflation reduction act which is you know touted as the the most aggressive climate funding we've had in U.S. history, which is just a joke. You know, it also at the same time as it puts some money into renewables and climate climate protective measures, it at the same time, you know, green-lighted the Mountain Valley Pipeline and also, which people aren't aware of, also really weakens the environmental um, review process for permitting for permitting moving forward for fossil fuel projects. So it's like it kind of green lights <laughs> the continued. It actually makes it easier for fossil fuel production to happen moving forward. It's the absolute opposite of what we need. We need to we need to immediately transition off fossil fuels, you know, to true renewables, wind, water and solar and 
you know, and restore ecosystems and shift our agriculture to be regenerative and all these things that would help to heal the planet, help cool the climate, restore biodiversity, all these things, improve air quality, improve our human lives as well, right? Um, but none of that is happening in any real way, not in the U.S. anyway. Yeah, and I was hoping you could say more about how uh, capitalism sort of factors into this, uh, uh, Tina, because it seems to me that, I mean, not only is there the sort of fundamental reality of uh, capitalism enshrining the maximization of profit above everything else, including um, uh, uh, human life, but also the kind of uh, the, the anarchy, if you will, of, of the way that <clears throat> the capitalist markets operate and things like that and how a socialist economy or a more planned economy could uh, uh, far better is far better equipped to sort of actually grapple with these things. And so what is it about the character of capitalism that basically uh, uh, puts it in a position to only make uh, the climate issue worse? Yeah, so capitalism, you know, the ruling class, the owners of business, the billionaires, they, you know, what they do, what they produce, what materials are used is based on what is most profitable for them, regardless of long-term ecological sustainability, regardless of workers, you know, rights. It's all about what is most profitable. And they'll produce and produce and extract and, you know, until there's no more profits to be made from those, from whatever they're producing, right? Um which causes all this ecological damage around the planet. You know, everything's a commodity, right? Trees are a commodity. Water's a commodity. The minerals in the earth are a commodity. It just causes this immense environmental destruction. Animals are a commodity, right? There's no regard to long-term implications of their actions at all. And, And they're given the green light by the capitalist governments to do whatever they want, right? The government actually, you know, the corporations write our laws, really. Legislators don't write our laws anymore. <laughs> the corporations write the laws, and the legislators just pass them. Um, I work in air quality regulation here in the Bay Area, and any regulation on industry that is passed, that is, you know, any any tightening of controls on industry emissions controls, um, needs to be economically feasible for the corporation to implement. Even if the technology exists, regardless of how huge their profits are every year, it needs to be deemed economically feasible. Um, Regardless of, you know, the impacts on the community, the deaths that are happening in the community from the emissions of these industries, right? So it's, yeah, our courts, our whole system upholds this, like, right to profit above all else. I mean, it's a very sick system. I mean, just one quick example, you know, livestock, we all know livestock um, produces, especially industrial production of livestock, produces a lot of methane emissions, a very climate-warming pollutant. And so in California, they're giving subsidies to livestock producers to install these methane digesters, which basically, you know, takes the methane and makes it into fuel and it doesn't go in the atmosphere. But what's happening in response to that is these producers are now (laughs) raising more livestock (laughs) because they get more subsidies by doing that. So it's actually like counterproductive. There needs to be direct control over industry, over agriculture that limits, <laughs> directly limits what they're doing and, and does, you know, shifts to econo- ecologically sustainable methods instead of these like monetary um, contributions to the industry to, to hope that they change in the right way. It's really, yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, I know that uh, I believe you're also going to be having um, the, a West Coast leg of a speaking tour as it pertains to climate solutions, Tina. And I know you were over here on uh, the East Coast. I actually had the opportunity to, to see you when you were in D.C., which was great. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us more just about this leg of uh, the speaking tour and where folks can find out more information. Yeah, so this month and the beginning of October, I'll be doing California speaking dates. I'm in Santa Rosa on this Sunday, and I'll be in San Francisco and Oakland later in the month. Um, and then in October, I'm actually doing a Southeast U.S. tour. I'm going to be in five cities in the Southeast. So you can find information at liberationnews.org um, with details on those dates. Um, you can also buy my book there as well, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just think it's so important that uh, we have those kinds of discussions and have those kinds of talks as it really is uh, about solutions, solutions that we don't hear from the government, that we don't hear from the mainstream media and things like that. And I, and I think for precisely the reason as we laid out is because to really get to the root of it is to challenge the very same uh, uh, capitalist system that both those corporate owned media platforms and the government itself is want to protect. Well, we thank you so much, Tina, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're discussing the prospects of peace talks as it concerns the war in Ukraine. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace. Medea, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, nice to be on with you. Absolutely. And it's always nice to have you on, Medea. And of course, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, following Russia's invasion back in February has been raging uh, uh, for a little over half a year at this point. And I mean, it really just feels like there have been consequences to go uh, all around uh, for Russia, Ukraine, uh, the U.S., Europe, NATO, all these sorts of things with the impact of uh, sanctions uh, uh, on Europe. I think showing up in a number of ways, protests in uh, places like Prague and in Germany uh, because of um, what uh, European investment in the war uh, means for people there on the ground. Of course, similar in the U.S., uh, dealing with inflation and all these sorts of things. And you recently co-authored a piece uh, talking about how uh, how peace talks in a moment like this are essential in terms of having a decisive end to this war which at least as of now doesn't necessarily appear to have an ending in sight. And so why, uh, Medea, do you see uh, peace talks as being so essential in this moment? And how likely do you think it is uh, for that to happen, given all that has transpired up until this point? I'm worried that this war could drag on for years, which means so many more people getting killed. I'm also worried that it could lead to 
a nuclear confrontation. And it's not just the people in Ukraine and the Russian soldiers and the Russian economy that are being hurt. It's actually the entire world. We see in Europe right now skyrocketing costs for uh, energy that is really affecting the standard of living of the people throughout Europe and is uh, causing upheavals politically as well that the, um, the, the conservatives, the right, the nationalists are taking advantage of. And then it's causing a rise in food prices that are affecting the hungriest people in the world, in Africa and places like Afghanistan. So this war has to be stopped. And uh, we talk in our piece about the efforts at negotiations back at the end of March, one month after the invasion began, and how there was a 15-point peace plan that was put on the table by Russia. And we say uh, that, unfortunately, that was dismissed as uh, totally uh, a non-starter, but I think we should go back to that right now. And um, this war has to end. It will end in peace talks. And it's much better if it ends sooner than later. Yeah. And why do you think uh, that that peace plan put forth by Russia was uh, ultimately dismissed, uh, Medea? Because this is something that I often think about whenever reading about how, you know, just these kinds of talks very well could have happened and could have saved a lot, saved a lot of lives and things like that. And so why, uh, from your perspective, why sort of dismiss or not consider these sorts of things if uh, everyone involved is actually chiefly interested in peace? You know what I mean? Well, we talk about how the U.S. and the U.K. actually torpedoed these peace talks when Prime Minister, who was Boris Johnson at the time, made a visit to Kiev uh, in the beginning of April. He said to the Prime Minister of Ukraine uh, that is uh, the U.K. would not be a party to any agreement between Russia and Ukraine and that this was a chance to, quote, press Russia, and they wanted to make the most of it. And the same message was followed up with the U.S. Defense Secretary Austin, who went to Kiev later in the month and made it clear that this was not just about defending Ukraine, but about weakening Russia. And so between the U.S. and the U.K., they derailed the peace talks, And now, after pouring in billions of dollars of weapons to support Ukraine, Ukraine is actually in a worse position if we were to get them to the negotiating table because uh, Russia has taken over more territory than it had at the time of the peace talks when Russia had said that it was willing to uh, go back uh, to how things were before the invasion, uh, with Russian troops out of all of Ukraine except for the Donbass and for Crimea. Yeah, and, you know, it just seems that um, increasingly, like uh, attempts at real peace uh, in different theaters uh, across the world, it just seems more and more uh, rare for that sort of thing to happen. I know certainly it seems to be the case when, you know, uh, the U.S. or the West uh, is involved here. And what I think a lot of this really reveals, at least to me, Medea, is, you know, even though the U.S. government, it has these claims to care about the plight of the Ukrainian people and all those sorts of things, but yet 
continues to help facilitate uh, their end of this conflict, which is chiefly harmful, uh, not only to the Ukrainian people, but as you're laying out to people all over the world uh, in a number of ways because of the institutional ripple effects uh, from this war. Well, I think it shows that uh, the priorities and real interest of Washington are quite different from the more uh, noble pronouncements that they make. And it seems that basically cutting off different avenues towards peace is just more evidence of that. And so from your perspective, I mean, what do you see as the interest of the U.S. and the West in this war uh, uh, at this point, as it seems that, you know, uh, actual diplomacy, it doesn't seem to be in the equation for the U.S. government, at least at this juncture? We don't have to conjecture. We can just take uh, the leaders of the U.S. at their word, whether it's Austin saying we want to weaken Russia or whether it's Biden himself blurting out at the end of a talk that Putin must go. Uh, this is about weakening Russia and not only that, weakening Russia so the U.S. can put its attention on China where it has been uh, gunning up for a war with the rival superpower. The war has a momentum of its own because members of Congress, even the progressives in the Democratic Party, now see it not in their interest to come out for peace, but to fall in line with the Democratic White House. We see the weapons makers who always need an enemy, uh, we see the whole military-industrial complex in all of the, its dimensions uh, always needing an enemy. And after the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and doesn't have uh, the troops in Iraq, um, it, this is the continuation of uh, the, the war machine. And what's very sad now is that we don't have a peace movement that's able to counteract uh, the uh, the war machine. And that's why we formed a new coalition called Peace in Ukraine and are calling for a week of actions starting next week. Uh, and people can go to peaceinukraine.org to find out more. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, another interesting thing that you all note in your peace, Medea, is um, the different ways that uh, leadership within Europe was sort of responding to this. I mean, you know, uh, recently uh, a former prime minister, uh, uh, Boris Johnson, who of course has since been replaced by uh, Liz Trust, saying that, you know, the the uh, collective West was sort of uh, uh, taking the same stance uh, towards Russia as it pertains to this war. But then we saw a series of uh, different leaders put out statements that perhaps contradicted Johnson's in a number of ways. And so I was hoping you could break down that dynamic and what what do you think it reveals about what the different heads of state within Europe may be feeling or thinking about the consequences of their involvement in this conflict? Well, they are trying to act like Europe is united and the Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, is there right now trying to pull them together. Uh, but because of the consequences on uh, it, it, and the people of Europe, it's going to be very hard to keep this kind of unity. When the peace talks were happening, we saw that leaders in, uh, in uh, Europe, including in Italy, in, the, um, the, uh, in France, and um, in Germany to some extent, were saying uh, that it was important to uh, find a ceasefire and credible negotiations. 
And you know how Germany has been so dependent on Russian energy uh, that we saw the German chancellor saying that we need to cease fire as quickly as possible. We don't hear that language coming from the United States. And I think as uh, the people in Europe start to protest more and more, and you talked about some of those protests uh, happening in Europe, but there are going to be more of them and they're going to be in more countries as the winter uh, gets nearer and people are facing these astronomical energy costs. Uh, it's going to break up the unity, which has already been broken up by uh, the uh, stance of Hungary, which has said we're not going to follow the sanctions. And um, Bulgaria is starting to move in that direction as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even in, in speaking about this, it makes me um, uh, think about Medea, how really the, the kind of stance of the real international community um, has been as it pertains to the war in Ukraine and how similarly the U.S. and the West have tried to make it seem that basically the whole world takes the same posture towards this issue that they do. But that really uh, doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, of course, the U.S., is the same entity that likes to, you know, go on and on about the supposed rules-based international order, almost to try to, you know, subsume uh, uh, the sort of collective opinion of all these different governments under whatever it is that the U.S. and the West want. But I feel like in so many ways, I mean, from different U.N. votes to how uh, different countries have um, sort of uh, uh, doubled down or asserted the fact that they intend to maintain their relationships with Russia and also, you know, China as well, I think, um, in, in kind of a similar vein, of, although uh, not, not uh, of course, precisely the same context. But even still, it seems like there's been a narrative that's been painted uh, chiefly by the U.S. and the West that, you know, the whole world is with them basically against Russia. But that that doesn't actually seem to be the, the reality of things. But this is just one of many, I think, fundamental aspects of this that isn't really widely understood by the rank and file person in the United States because of the messaging that we get both from the government and from uh, uh, mainstream media platforms. And so what do you think that dynamic uh, sort of really reveals about, you know, the reality of international opinion around uh, uh, the war in Ukraine and how it may be impacting uh, a U.S. foreign policy as a result? Well, as you say, the American people are unaware of this because you will not get that from the mainstream media. But the majority of countries of the world uh, don't want to get involved in this. They would like to see the conflict ended. Um, they certainly want to see a reduction in inflation and the, uh, the consequences of this war that were, were not, none of their making, but they are uh, having to deal with the, uh, the, the results of it. And uh, they're also understanding the provocation from the United States on the, and the West. Uh, they are understanding that NATO is no longer a, uh, a North American uh, treaty organization. It now has a global projection, and uh, they're concerned about uh, this uh, aggressive military alliance expanding more. Uh, there's a, a call uh, among a lot of uh, organizations around the world for a new non-aligned movement uh, that would really be able to counter the superpowers. Uh, and I 
think what we're seeing more and more is people uh, distrusting the United States, not only because the past wars that we have been involved in, where we have broken international law uh, and don't see this as democracies versus autocracies, but see it more as a fight among superpowers. Uh, and they also see the U.S. internal uh, meltdown of our system and are frightened by that. So most of the world does not want to take sides in this. Yeah. And what you're saying, Medea, actually is just, you know, sort of a reminder of why it's important for there to be um, a peace movement that's really pushing for this kind of uh, a diplomacy when uh, some of the involved parties uh, seem to want the opposite. And so how do you see the role of a peace movement in a moment like this? And perhaps I was thinking you could tell us more about the, the week of actions that you all have coming up as well. Yes, well, Sean, as somebody who uh, you have been so involved in piecework over the years, uh, you know how maligned we were in the beginning when we said uh, we shouldn't uh, get involved in an invasion of Iraq, we shouldn't get involved in a war in Afghanistan, we shouldn't be bombing Libya and trying to overthrow its leader, and we were right in all of those cases. And we're right in this one now, but it always takes time for people to get to our position. Uh, and that is, uh, we need to stop the U.S. from fueling this war. And the week of actions uh, is meant to start bringing people out of their uh, confines of uh, talking about this in, on the social media and really get it out into the open. So we have one day where we're contacting uh, the State Department, the White House, another day where we're contacting our members of Congress. Uh, other groups are actually getting out onto the streets to do rallies and educational events. Uh, there's days to do collective action on social media. And so this is a new grouping of both individuals and organizations. Uh, the website is peaceinukraine.org. Uh, and we really feel like when you have a Democrat in the White House, whether it's Obama or now Biden, uh, the peace movement really suffers as a result of that because uh, people who consider themselves more liberal don't want to see uh, the, the Trump-like people back in power, um, don't want to be criticizing uh, the White House. And so the Democrats fall in line, including those in the Progressive Caucus, and there's nobody but us to be calling them out. And so part of what we're doing is going into the halls of Congress, which isn't easy to get into these days, uh, and going to the uh, members of the uh, progressive caucus and saying, what are you going to do about this new tranche of money, $13.7 billion, that the White House is asking you for when you just passed $40 billion for Ukraine? Uh, where is the end of this? And when are you going to stand up and say negotiations, not escalation? Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Medea, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Happy Friday. Glad to be back. Absolutely. And happy Friday to you as well, Nate. And I wanted to kick things off today uh, talking about the NFL and specifically the uh, hometown team here in D.C., uh, the recently renamed and rebranded Washington Commanders. And um, it appears that Dan Snyder, uh, the owner of the Commanders, seems to try to be uh, avoiding uh, some of the consequences of his own dealings here uh, in a number of ways. And I was hoping you could help us understand, Nada, just what's happening with Snyder and where on earth is he at this point? Yeah, so, you know, I've been doing a little bit of reading and over the summer, um, you know, he was, you know, Congress had tried to subpoena him for a long time, actually, uh, this, what would have been this offseason, um, to have him come testify in person under oath. Uh, they were not able to serve him that subpoena because he was uh, kicking it on his 300 300-foot yacht in the Mediterranean. So then he was able to appear via Zoom. And, you know, because he was not, he had not been served, he was not able, um, he was able to choose which questions he wanted to answer. And again, this goes back to the toxic workplace culture. I mean, which, among other things, includes numerous sexual assault allegations um, that essentially using the the Washington cheerleaders um, to accompany big, big money, uh, season ticket holders, corporate sponsors um, on on you know junket trips to like Costa Rica as their entertainment, um, and uh, you know some of those women have come out and kind of detailed what that entertainment really entailed, and uh, you know you can kind of put two and two together pretty easily there, and um, and the same goes for uh, just you know everything that's going on. I mean, ever since he's bought this team in 1999, I mean, not to mention just fans who loyally you know pay the insane amount of money he charges. The way he goes after even a, uh, you know, for one example, he's sued numerous season ticket holders under these what they call like seat um, purchasing seat licenses, PSLs, where you essentially have like a right to purchase season tickets. You buy that right. And um, Snyder would contend that like that means if you don't buy season tickets, then somehow you violated that contract. One egregious example is a grandmother who had gone bankrupt, um, an older lady. He sued and successfully got a court order to force her to pay $66,000 despite being bankrupt to this, to this billionaire. Um, and this is all in the context now of on Sunday, September 11th, the Washington Commanders opening up um, their first home game against the Jacksonville Jaguars um, as this Washington Commanders and launching their new brand. And, um, you know, this is the same stadium too. remember that Jalen Hurts, you know, almost got hurt. Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts was almost injured in last year with a piece of like metal debris falling, falling down um, on him as he exited the field uh, from something that broke. They had the, the water, they had the pipe burst, pipes bursting. And um, despite it being a completely sunny day, fans being doused with what appeared to be uh, sewage water, um, despite what the team claims. So, not, and also the complete control of the area around the Landover Maryland Stadium is profound. I mean, he, you, you cannot get anywhere near that stadium without paying Dan Snyder some kind of money. Um, there's no shops, no corner stores. It's not like a stadium in any kind of neighborhood. And that's not unique. 
Um, a lot of teams have gone to that model, but um, it is uh, one that's very dystopian. And it, what's interesting, though, and I'll close on this with Snyder, is that the only way to really discipline him in terms of removing him as an NFL owner is to rely on the other 31 NFL owners, that mean the 32nd, to vote. I think 24 out of 32 have to vote to remove him. And, um, you know, does the ruling, do those guys who are, are embodiments of the ruling class really want to set a precedent that, uh, you know, any kind of misconduct can revol- result in you being, uh, um, you know, removed from your position? And in their eyes, you know, you paid the money, you bought into the club, um, you shouldn't lose that. I mean, the only exception in pro sports I can think of to that is Donald Sterling with the Los Angeles Clippers. And even him, days before he was about to be removed as an owner, his wife was able to execute the sale of the team to Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer um, and still kept the title herself of owner emeritus, despite the egregious comments of Donald Sterling and the outrage from the, the NBA Players Union. I mean, his egregious comments involving um, you know, being recorded um, with um, young women uh, with horrible sexist and racist language. And uh, this was a pattern Elgin Baylor you know, chronicled for years. So anyways, Daniel Snyder, uh, as much as I'd like to see him, and I think many, many people will want to see him held accountable for his actions, has been able to, just like he dodged, successfully dodged a subpoena by being out in the high seas, is very likely to also dodge, you know, the, the cost of, 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 you know, losing an NFL team he owns and covets and has since 1999 and helping run them into the ground, essentially, as a successful franchise, so. Yeah, and I mean, what you say about these types being a kind of microcosm of the ruling class itself, I think is quite true, Nate, because I mean, we're talking about a, a, a situation where, you know, Dan Snyder uh, seemingly has created a situation to where uh, he can basically enjoy impunity from all of these uh, uh, different things that we're detailing. And this is something that only people of a certain kind of means and wealth are actually able to do. I mean, they tend to be very intentional because they're very aware of the consequences of the things they do. And so they, they create an environment almost like building a wall around them to where they never actually have to uh, suffer any consequences for the things that they do and that they always find a way to move those consequences to uh, uh, someone else. And so, I mean, uh, I think the, the most striking part about it, as you point out, is that, you know, there's nothing really special about uh, Dan Snyder in that way and that this is pretty par for the course and not just for um, these NFL owner types but like you say, of their class as a whole. Right. And, and he was fined $10 million last summer. Uh, the NFL hired Beth Wilkinson, a prominent D.C. attorney, to investigate the, all the sexual assault allegations and the culture, the toxic culture within that organization, within the commander's organization. And, um, you know, he basically skated by being agreeing to, uh, or he was required to, I should say, step back from the day-to-day operations of his team, uh, you know, basically – yeah, making trades and draft picks stuff. But I mean, who's really able to enforce that? And is it really being enforced? There's no real mechanism to know um, $10 million to drop in the bucket, the Snyder. So the fine is in some you know serious deterrent. So that's a, uh, that's the situation we live in right now. 
Yeah, definitely. And switching gears uh, uh, to baseball, Nate, uh, some good news. Uh, we talk a good bit here on the Red Spin Report about the, the plight of minor league baseball players and just the deep exploitation that they face as they wait to be um, called up to the MLB. And it's uh, been reported that uh, uh, more than half of minor league baseball players have actually voted to unionize. And I believe they'll be doing this under the uh, Major League Baseball Player Association, which I think for some reason may have avoided uh, unionizing efforts amongst the minor league players before. But I mean, how do you see uh, this development, Nate, uh, considering, you know, the, the coverage that the struggles of minor league players has been getting in the media here lately? No, I think it can't be overstated how big of a deal this is. I mean, the advocates for minor leagues, minor leaguers, uh, the organization that was created really to put, create pressure on from the outside, um, you know, has played a huge role in this. And they're actually now going to become the union you know, leadership for minor league players. Uh, MLB Players Association, you're right, has not uh, you know, done maybe the best job of expressing solidarity in the past, but that's changed under the leadership of uh, Tony Clark. And they are they issued, a, a, I think, a strong statement on, uh, on September 6th saying that with a significant majority of minor leaguers already authorizing the Major League Baseball um, Players Association to become their collective bargaining representative and to create their own minor league bargaining unit, the MLBPA today requested formal recognition from Major League Baseball. Minor league players have made it unmistakably clear they want the MLBPA to represent them and are ready to begin collective bargaining in order to positively affect the upcoming season. Uh, former Troy Tigers first baseman and now executive director of the of the union um, stated. So I think it's important. We're gonna. I mean, MLB is is, is tried to make you know uh, kind of like some cosmetic changes in terms of. Uh, housing arrangements for players in the minor leagues, um, trying to, um, you know, put, put some money in, in, in a pool. I mean, it really has not been that significant. When you look at the pay raises that MLB commissioner Rob Manfred cites for having MLB having done something, and, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be forgotten, too, that this really kicked up as an issue due in, in 2020, like so many other causes um, in the wake of, the COVID pandemic and, and the George Floyd killing and, and, and so many other events of that year that happened, um, you know, many issues of injustice for being raised. And, and this is one that, um, you know, more and more major league baseball players finally started to speak out about um, realizing how just because they made it, it shouldn't be this system where they get it's sort of, I think, analogous to the whole like unpaid internship, you know, with the professional managerial class jobs and, in corporate America where, you know, if you come from a family that's middle class, you can afford to do these unpaid internships, develop and foster those relationships with people in, um, in companies and organizations and, and um, get that experience you need. But if you're, you know, working class and you have to provide for a family, you got student loan debts on the horizon. Um, a lot of those opportunities aren't available. So to try to, the way MLB tries to make this analogy that somehow you're just an apprentice as a minor leader, they uh, they claim, you know, of course, um, how many of the players. And there is a big number who get big signing bonuses when they're drafted, um, either out of high school or, or college or, you know, sign internationally, um, which is different. They, they, there's a, international players are not going to go through the draft process. There's a, you know, a signing process. It's, it's just a different deal. But they try to claim that the signing bonuses they get and that most players get, um, you know, give them money to live on. 
and it like you know most other players just need to basically realize they're not good enough right if uh if it's if it's too hard and uh he's like oh well, they can do gig work they got half the year to you know do this and yeah, we're not even talking about the issue of unpaid spring training, which has been something um, that has been an issue with, uh, with baseball for a long time. So, yeah, MLB doesn't want this, but um, it's with over 50% voting that way, it's kind of hard to see how Manfred's going to be able to stop. Manfred being the commissioner of Major League Baseball is going to be able to stop this from happening now. Definitely a very necessary and a positive development. And I also wanted to give an update on the Brittany Griner situation, Nate, as uh, she's been detained for about 200 days uh, at this point. And uh, reportedly, someone named Alexander Vinnick uh, uh, could very well be considered a part of the prisoner swap for Brittany Griner. Uh, uh, I was hoping you could tell us more about Vinnick and uh, where you see um, Griner's situation as of now. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had more, you know, mainstream media coverage of some of these details. We, we hear, um, you know, earlier in the week, the WNBA Players Union did put out a change.org petition that, um, you know, seeking support uh, for Brittany. But I, I just don't really know what that kind of that, that kind of action is really going to do. It's better than nothing, I guess, at this point. Um, the other problem here with, with, uh, with the Griner situation is just um, how it's so intricately tied in to deteriorate the, the, the just almost non-existent relations between the U.S. and Russia. And again, we talked about this before, but the problem of you know having Cold War-like political you know, uh, ties with, with you know between the two countries, the U.S. and Russia, is that you know Brittany Griner ends up being caught in the crosshairs. You know, after this WNBA season, um, many. Um, Women's basketball players are going to go play in Russia because you know they actually make more money in the Russian leagues, winter leagues they play in, than they they do as WNBA players. So um, we'll see how sanctions affect that, and if there's going to be some kind of movement against it. I mean, I was disappointed to see that while I agree with Dave Zirin and a lot of what he says in his recent piece in the Nation, Dave Zirin is still like calling for like a boycott of Russia and you know highlighting um you know, really kind of playing into all the talking points about, you know, the, the prison system and the penal colony, as they call it. And like, look, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty terrible conditions. All right. So let's not, I mean, and the same could be said, said about Angola prison and Louisiana or Parchman and Mississippi, any number of prisons here in the U S but um, so, I mean, it's not a good situation, but I, I don't think um, trying to, talk up the sort of, uh, you know, anti-Russia talking points and, and rhetoric is really helpful even to Brittany. Um, well, on the surface, I mean, she had less than a gram of cannabis oil. I mean, just if, I were, if I'm able to, which we can't do, but if in a vacuum I was able to just remove any of the geopolitics from the equation, I mean, I obviously, I obviously think that's absurd, but we can't remove the geopolitics from the, from the equation. And you mentioned in the lead up, this, this guy, Alexander Vinnick, and, you know, he's a guy that the U.S. got Greece to arrest in 2017 at their request. Um, he's accused of being a criminal mastermind, laundering more than $4 billion as part of a Bitcoin scam. Evidently, Moscow is very interested in trying to you know, secure his release as part of this because he's looking at what is essentially will be a life sentence, 55 years at his age, um, if, if convicted. So um, we look at we've talked about, you know, Victor Bout. We've talked about, you know. Um, now, you know, Alexander Vinnick and, um, and there's, you know, there's also the, the Paul Whelan situation, the, uh, the alleged U S spy or, you know, academic or teacher from the United States that is, um, the former Marine that is, 
um, to try to get him out along with Griner. So it's you wish this could be a simple matter, but unfortunately, um, I think Russia was really put off by the two for one proposal the U.S. you know is pretty widely reported to have pushed for, which would have been Victor Bout for both Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Um, and they're, I mean, the U.S. would claim it's proportionality that Bout was an international arms dealer and whatnot. So therefore, getting him should require two coming back. And, and Russia didn't really see it that way. So here we are. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, like I said last time we talked about this, I don't see her release being secured anytime soon, given the the way that the U.S. is yet again sending another uh, another massive, you know, Eight six hundred or eight hundred million dollar package to Ukraine on top of another three billion dollar uh, package that recently went over, um, and you know as as Russia is sacrificing blood and treasure um, to try to protect its uh, Russian speaking minorities and in, in, in eastern Ukraine from the you know the you know the oppression they they've they've suffered the last eight years under the uh, the NATO backed uh, Kiev regime. So uh, these are all issues that just are unfortunately you know, cannot be separated from the Brittany Griner story. And I wish we could have some more intelligent discourse about, you know, the implications of all this and and discuss this. Because if you're really interested in getting Brittany Griner home, Americans need to do a lot more in terms of trying to understand why it is it hasn't happened already. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, last thing I'm just wondering about uh, on this issue, Nate, is why do you think uh, the U.S. has taken uh, uh, that stance? Because I tend to agree that uh, basically trying to get a two for one deal on a prisoner swap likely was, you know, off putting to Moscow. And so, I mean, why why would the U.S. you think even put that sort of thing forth if what they're chiefly concerned about is securing freedom for Brittany Griner? I hate to say it, but it's to keep the issue alive. I mean, they, uh, you know, Joe Biden can just keep claiming that, that she's wrongfully detained. And, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, I think it, it's it's just an injustice on any kind of universal, you know, analysis of, you know, of, of, of just how justice should be applied. But having said that, I mean, we're talking about the architect of the crime bill. We're talking about guys, a guy that had no problem um, putting away, you know, you know, th- think about, I mean, how many guys get, get caught up in these, you know, low level little like crack buy bust operations in cities all over the U.S. where they, they former construction workers might be hanging out, drinking a beer on the corner, you know, plainclothes cops pull up and like, hey, we're looking for some rock and constant. And the guy's not even selling anything. They just go facilitate something that you know, find the guy for him to help. Suddenly, boom, you're locked. You're, you're locked up going away 25 years. You might be a repeat offender. And, and like that's just one example. I mean, and, you know, talking about the smallest type amounts. I mean, that's what law enforcement does in this country is they go after the low hanging fruit. They don't put the investigative resources into solving, you know, armed, ro- hard, armed robberies, you know, like uh, rape, sexual assaults, repeated domestic, uh, you know, you know, beatings and whatnot, because, well, I mean, you can sometimes, but the, the reality is a lot of the crimes that require, you know, really tough, hard police work and investigative work are, are things that don't really uh, bring in the funds the way running up your stats, to- your stat totals for, uh, you know, quick little drug arrest are that, that, that fill prisons across this country. And what is the largest has the largest incarcerated population in the world. And um, so to hear Joe Biden talking about, you know, unjustly detained prisoners. 
Well, um, I, I agree, you know, that she is. It's just, it's just laughably absurd. And I can't help but thinking Moscow feels the same way and, uh, and just like just almost rolling their eyes at the just absurd hypocrisy of someone like Biden talking like that. And I think Biden can say like, hey, we offered up Victor Bout. You know, that seems like proportion, proportionally he should be he's a big fish. Right. So, you know, much more serious crimes, allegedly. So, you know, that means that, uh, you know, two for ones you know, really fair. They knew Russia wasn't going to accept that regardless of that you know rationale that, you know, the U.S. is trying to put out there. Therefore, they can keep this, you know, this rhetoric going about Russia being this absurd, draconian, penal colony state with this sort of stereotypical leadership that's uh, autocratic and just ships any dissidents out to Siberia never to be heard from again. Since that narrative is so ingrained in the minds of Americans who've been propagandized all throughout the Cold War, dating back to the whole post-World War II era. So uh, I think they cynically are just kind of keeping this alive as an issue to try to continue to hammer Russia with. and and use so effectively, given how grossly undereducated, uneducated, miseducated, really, our population is by and large. And that miseducation is allowing this kind of cynical game that Blinken and, and I guess Biden, if he's even really involved, are, uh, are playing to go on. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, September 9th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252113201320 Our rappers are standing by You can also download our shows At sputniknews.com Slash radio Underscore by underscore Any underscore means You can also hear us at sputnik.mave.digital That's sputnik.mave Dot digital You can also follow us on social media Facebook and twitter.com Slash B-A-M necessary And as always we are broadcasting Live from Rumble at Rumble.com slash C as in Cat slash B-A-M Necessary but wherever you Are in this world and however you hit Us up we want to hear from you We most certainly do and we are Very happy to be joined for The hour today by John Jeter An award-winning journalist and foreign Correspondent radio and television Producer bluesologist and Decolonizer and author of the book Flat broke in the free market How globalization fleeced Working people. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. 
Yeah, and uh, John, of course, the uh, top line issue perhaps around the world right now uh, is the death of Queen uh, Elizabeth II, uh, the second rather. And I think uh, quite naturally there was uh, an outpouring, frankly, of uh, celebration and uh, happiness and in some cases perhaps indifference to the death of uh, uh, Elizabeth, who I believe ruled for about 70 years, dying at the age of 96 of course, being born into one of, if not the most uh, prominent imperialist families uh, uh, in the world, uh, whose fabulous wealth was, of course, built off uh, uh, the backs of a vicious colonialism and imperialism and things like that. And then, of course, with that, there there are people who, I don't know, who whenever someone prominent like this dies, somehow they always want them to be appreciated outside of the context of the tangible harm that they cause throughout their public career. And so I'm just sort of curious how you're uh, uh, viewing the uh, death of Queen Elizabeth and, you know, what her reign uh, you think has meant for colonized people the world over. Oh, boy. Um, Well, to start with, I think we have to we must all agree that uh, the British monarchy, as represented by Queen Elizabeth II, is the most visible symbol of white supremacy and settler colonialism in the world today. So I think we have to start there. And even though she was a ceremonial figure for the most part, she was not uh, uh, a head of state in a political calculation, that you know we have uh, basically a 20th century in which uh, uh, everything from beheading to uh, mass incarceration to torture, uh, from Nigeria to Jamaica to uh, 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 Argentina, uh, these things were done in her name. And so, you know, this, these hagiographies of her in the mainstream media, including, quite frankly, by some African Americans, which I find terrifying and, and, and also not even remotely surprising. Uh, we have to sort of uh, recognize these for what they are, which is a symbol. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, John, so, so, sorry to cut you off. We're, we're having a bit of a sound issue here. We're going to uh, get right back to you. But yeah, I, I think for uh, sure, when we have a look at this, I mean, it always just sort of strikes me to see this kind of uh, a, a thing, particularly from the formerly colonized people who have any bit, any drop of sympathy for Queen Elizabeth, despite the well-documented and long history of exploitation, brutality, and outright suffering that both her as an individual and the British crown in general has been uh, uh, guilty of and has committed over these years. And people like to highlight the fact that, you know, as queen, she has no official power and that she, that from a, a state power standpoint, she's only a figurehead. Well, if you think that she had um, no say or no uh, uh, opinion or influence in British politics or European politics after reigning for almost a century, well, then I think you fundamentally misunderstand the dynamics of how a lot of these things operate. Although it has been interesting to uh, sort of see how Americans have been um, uh, orienting or responding to the death of Queen Elizabeth. Of course, the U.S. actually fought uh, a whole war to, to separate 
separate itself from uh, the British crown in the process of doing so laid the foundation for what became of uh, the ruling class here in the United States. And so, you know, having this kind of affinity or having this uh, uh, sympathy all these years later, literally centuries after the fact, I mean, not saying that you necessarily have to, you know, keep a gripe for all that time. It's just not clear to me what is at the root of so many Americans feeling so uh, positively or heartfelt about uh, the Queen of Elizabeth or the British crown in general. And I think it says a lot about how oppressed people, formerly colonized people can internalize those sorts of uh, uh, things, you know, internalize this um, emotion or this feeling for uh, your own exploiter, for your own uh, oppressor, for the imperialist power that has been responsible for the suffering of you and your people for all these years. It's just something about that process of colonization and slavery. A big part of maintaining it is sort of the uh, the mental and emotional aspect of it, right? So that you and and as people, you start to actually believe and um, uh, uh, imbibe, if you will, these narratives about you know the glory of this European power and the debauched or degraded nature of you know uh, uh, whatever is your particular culture. And uh, John, I think we got you back now. And so you know, j- just to circle back, I was basically getting your top line thoughts about the death of Queen Elizabeth and how folks around the world and in the States here have been responding to it. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I think you've kind of really said everything I wanted to say, but I, I think, you know, for starters, we need to realize that uh, Queen Elizabeth II was the uh, most visible symbol of white supremacy uh, and settler colonialism in the world. And that in the global south, across the global south, uh, many, many millions of people see her as such. Um, and so it, it is jarring to anyone who's ever sort of spoken to a black South African, a Kenyan, a Nigerian, even an, an, an Argentinian. It's jarring to sort of reconcile their view of the British monarchy with the view that is perpetuated on uh, mainstream media here in the United States and also in the West and in the UK itself, um, you know, literally, Queen Elizabeth is seen as almost literally is seen as someone who has blood dripping from her hands, the blood of of tens of millions of people you know, from India to to Jamaica to uh, Nigeria, and so it's uh, again, you know, we're 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 stuck with this war of narratives and this. Uh, Western media culture that requires the suspension of disbelief. Uh, it's not conducive, really, to addressing um, wounds that have never healed. And we really need to find a way to sort of um, take ownership of our own narratives. Yeah, definitely. And before you got cut off, John, you were saying something about uh, the Stockholm syndrome experienced by so many formerly colonized uh, and oppressed people. How do you see that as factoring into the response over Elizabeth's death? You know, I, I, I think a lot about this. I think a lot of it has to do with just the dumbing down. Um, and we've never we've never really had an intellectual tradition in the United States. What little intellectual tradition we've had mostly comes from the radical black uh, political tradition um, dating back to at least Frederick Douglass uh, and his peers. 
But, um, you know, we, we, we've dumbed down as an attempt, as a culture, we've dumbed down our discourse, particularly since the days of the Black Panthers and the radical Black Power movement, because, of course, there was a very real and robust interrogation of what needs to be fixed, right? Uh, of course, the Panthers famously always uh, said that in, in order to address the phenomenon that, affl- that afflicts you, the phenomenon that afflicts you, you must first be able to define it. And the Panthers set out to do that, and they uh, really expanded, you know, the, the intellectual uh, uh, um, discourse in the United States. And so the last 50 years has been a backlash to that, uh, in which the culture from the new media to the entertainment media uh, and, and everyone else has tried to uh, dumb down the culture so that we don't sort of seek the solutions that that uh, will help us uh, 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 escape our malaise, our, our ennui. Uh, and so this Stockholm Syndrome, I think, is really uh, a reflection of an American population that largely just regurgitates what it's been told. People aren't taught how to think, but what to think. And that's what you see. I mean, when I watch, um, who's that big five-head Negro on uh, NBC at night? You know, last night he was, you know, talking about the queen and what a loss it was. How, how is how in the world could a black man see the death of the queen? I mean, well, no one, no one, you know, cheers for anyone's death. You know, and I'm not saying that we should cheer for Queen Elizabeth's death, but you know, certainly, why would we mourn this woman who's responsible for so, so much death and mayhem? rape and genocide all across uh, the developing world, and particularly in Africa. I can't imagine uh, why any any thinking black person would uh, 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 join in the exaltation of this woman who is responsible and whose name so much so much terrorism has been spread across the world. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you said something interesting a moment ago when uh, uh, you were talking about uh, the role that the media plays in sort of propagating these narratives. And you you, you use the phrase um, suspension of disbelief, which I think is interesting because that's what this is a, a, a sort of a mental process that we go through when we consume entertainment. Right. Like scripted TV shows or even reality shows, which, of course, are themselves scripted or movies or things like that. And I feel like that's actually entirely appropriate, given the sort of entertainment style of presentation that. Uh, 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 so defines, I think, a lot of what passes for journalism in the mainstream right now with these different corporate owned media platforms. So sort of in the same way that um, a lot of these reality shows sort of um, they're, they're based around just conflict. Right. That's what drives everything. It's not about an actual story. It's not about the depth of some narrative. It's just about conflict. And so, you know, that's why we get these shows where it's, you know, it it can boil down to like a bunch of people screaming at each other or only the most uh, sensational of uh, things are are treated with importance while more consequential things are sort of uh, brushed aside and never, ever, ever can you sort of discuss real solutions to the myriad problems facing both the U.S. and the world right now because to do that would mean to address the capitalist system itself, the very system upon which the uh, 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 corporate media platforms and certainly the government itself is uh, built. You know what I mean? And so how do you think that that sort of nature 
of uh, uh, corporate media at this point sort of uh, factors into how these narratives are spread? Yeah, no, the, the, the corporate media is at the center of this, uh, you know, if, if I can uh, um, be haughty for one second and, and, and invoke Gramsci, you know, it's the culture that is the chief tool of the hegemons. That's how they control us in the the news media, although I think the entertainment media plays a very close, uh, is, is a close second. The news media plays a central role in assigning uh, the American population, the 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 the, the, uh, the population in this settler colony, because we have to remember this is a settler colony. The United States is a settler colony, right? Um, you might even say it's the marquee settler colony, but. The, the, the settler colony assigns us identities, right? The people who don't accept those identities become the people who are loathed and hated, you know, Malcolm X and James Baldwin, uh, uh, you know. And, and, and so, you know, the, the whole thing is trying to sort of, uh, like, you, like you said so aptly, it's a script that we've been given. And we just read, and so, you know, there's no language that really encapsulates our reality, at least not in the mainstream news media, right? That there is, um, th this is a uh, society that is built on three crimes against humanity, genocide, enslavement, and rape, by which I mean there's never, there's no justification at any time for any of those things to happen, right? And yet, this country is built on those three things, and so... If you understand that we are trying to reshape reality, right, then it becomes very clear that the queen's portrayal of this exaltation of her as this figure to be admired, to be respected, who held together the, the British, uh, the, the United Kingdom in the face of all these changes, right, that characterization of her is part of this very real sort of uh, morality play, right? That that is that is the superstructure upon which um, the superstructure upon which we is forced upon us, right? Uh, as a as a sort of rebuke to our reality, right? We're not, you know, we're not dealing with uh, rampant high inflation, police violence against uh, black men, especially. You know, we don't. We're not stealing money from Afghanistan. We haven't stolen money from Russia. You know, what you need to know is that the Queen has died. She was a great woman. You should hit your knees and mourn. Right? It's a distraction. It's meant to be a distraction, so that we, as Malcolm, as Malcolm X said, you know, if you're not careful, the news media will have you uh, hating the oppressed and loving the oppressor. And that is more true today than I think it's ever been. Yeah, definitely. And my favorite, I think, is when people say, oh, well, yeah, all this you're saying about her history, the queen may be true, but she was someone's mother and grandmother and all these sorts of things. And it's like, so? I mean, there were lots of other mothers and grandmothers within all of the colonies that she had a hand uh, in exploiting as well. It's just it's just such an odd thing to me to try to um, uh, uh, assert or affirm or to uplift or like glorify the supposed humanity of these reactionaries and these imperialists simply because they're dead. And it's just, to me, just kind of a tacit way of uh, excusing or whitewashing their obvious crimes. And what it actually made me think of, John, it reminded me of when John McCain died here in the U.S. It was like a similar thing. All of a sudden, we weren't supposed to talk about, you know, the fact that we only really know him because he he took part in um, uh, the genocidal Vietnam War and was 
was captured there for a few years and all these sorts of things. We were supposed to ignore all of the reactionary things he did while in office. All of these uh, uh, sorts of things, all of that was supposed to be all well and good simply because the cat died and people say, oh, well, you can't speak ill of the dead. Well, why not? I mean, especially when there were plenty of people who were criticizing both McCain, Queen Elizabeth, and a whole lot of other people while they were still alive. That doesn't change in my estimation simply because a person stops breathing. And so for me, it's just a question of, well, why does this individual deserve a respect and death that they didn't give countless other people in life? You, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's just sort of a weird way that uh, uh, people sort of uh, uh, consider these things, almost as if they value, you know, quote unquote, uh, propriety or you know, being uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I, I guess the sort of niceties of politics in that way. They care more about that than like people's actual impact, it seems, you know? Yeah, they, they care more about truth. They care much more about respect than they do about truth because, of course, uh, the two are very hard to reconcile in our current arrangement, right? And John McCain, you know, and I had this argument with some people in my own family. I mean, he was uh, a man from who, to my knowledge, referred to the Vietnamese by a horrific slur up until the day he died and was unrepentant about it. Uh, the man was a monster, right? And I don't know any way any other way to describe him. It reminds me, and again, it speaks to the dumbing down of the discourse, right? The idea that Queen Elizabeth was somebody's mother. Well, so were all of the people uh, who were terrorized in her name in Kenya and Nigeria and South Africa, right? It reminds me very much of a New Yorker profile of the um, right, uh, the, the uh, Algerian writer Albert Camus, who is someone who I admire as a writer, but, you know, we have to sort of admit, uh, acknowledge that he was on the wrong side of history when it came to the Algerian Civil War, and me meaning that he supported the French. Uh, and he, um, uh, he, he uh, the New Yorker profile wrote that his mother was French, and that's why he supported, uh, she was French, but she lived in Algeria, and that's why he supported the French in the Civil War. And of course, the obvious retort is, well, all the Algerians who were killed by the French, who were terrorized, I think it was, I just read this recently, and it's just mesmerizing to me, that on uh, Victory in Europe Day, which was, I think, May 8th, 1945, uh, the French murdered 45,000 Algerians, Algerians who were demanding uh, as a as a reward for their efforts to uh, uh, defeat the Nazis in World War II, they were demanding their independence. And the French murdered 45,000 of them, I think on a single day, right, or certainly in a very short period of time. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just this kind of a whitewashing, pun very much intended, of history and the, the absence of, the absence of, the people who are most responsible for progressive change, for the modernization of the world, really, over the last, certainly over the last hundred years, those people are absent from the conversation. So we, you know, we talk to these people in the streets in the UK who mourn the Queen, but I haven't seen any interviews, and I don't, I have to be honest, I don't watch the news that, that much, but I haven't seen any interviews of, of uh, uh, Kenyans who talk about how they feel about the queen. Um, so it's really, it's very unfortunate. It's something we need to address if we have any hope to really liberate ourselves from uh, this tragic situation. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by John Jeter. And John, I wanted to raise this uh, other issue that I think is connected in a number of ways to our discussion about uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth and other reactionaries like John McCain and, and others, because it's connected to this culture of celebrity worship that is uh, uh, so deep and abiding here in the U.S. and also the way that imperialists have their crimes whitewashed. And uh, this and what I'm referring to is the recent unveiling of the Obama portraits at uh, the White House. Uh, Both Barack and Michelle Obama uh, recently had some portraits that were unveiled uh, at the White House. I think this was somewhat overshadowed by the Queen's death, actually. And the reason why I, I see this as being connected, John, is you know, a kind of a similar deal in terms of when you look at Barack Obama, this was a popular president, first black president, young president, um, someone that was presented to us as cool, uh, quote unquote. You know, he you know made sure that we knew what was on his rap playlist and stuff and that he liked a little Wayne and Jay-Z. Right. And um, but uh, also, you know, someone who you know helped plunge Libya into a failed state with open air slave markets you know, uh, overthrew a democratically elected government in Honduras, uh, uh, all sorts of things, you know, oversaw an economic collapse because he bailed out the banks instead of the American people. I mean, attacked the uh, movement for black lives that um, exploded under his watch. I mean, just so many things that I just think sort of get kind of swallowed up and and, and forgotten when we, we sort of see them presented in this way. Now, of course, the whole presidential portrait Peace is a is a pretty regular thing that that happens all the time. But what I'm really speaking to is how these people are situated in our memory, in particular, somebody like Barack Obama, who I maintain that his presidency was it signaled a historic setback in black politics in the U.S. in a, a, a number of ways. But we're supposed to celebrate and uphold him simply because he was the first. Never mind the fact that we didn't get that hope and change that we thought we were voting for. At least I, you know, that was definitely my feeling, speaking as someone who voted for him back in 2008. And so I'm wondering how you kind of see that aspect of things, John, about how people sort of situate themselves in popular memory in such a way to where the things that they did that were directly harmful um, simply aren't brought up. And it's even considered rude to bring these things up. And it can always be explained away like, oh, well, that's all presidents do and things like that, as if that somehow makes it better. And I mean, I could go on and on about it, but I'm just wondering how you sort of see how this uh, uh, this culture of celebrity worship and this a whitewashing of straight up war crime sort of go hand to hand within the context of imperialism. 
I see it exactly as you do, Sean. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about Obama, and yeah, we never, or rarely do I hear mention, at least in any kind of public venue, that under Obama, the African Americans, 42 million African Americans, lost more of their wealth than at any time since the closure of the Freedmen's Bank in 1874. Uh, that's just extraordinary to me, and it's not a coincidence, by the way. <clears throat> Much like the, the the bank officers at the Freedmen's Bank hired Frederick Douglass to basically be the spokesman to encourage black people to keep their money in the bank while it was failing, and therefore they eventually ended up losing all of it, right? Although Frederick Douglass did not know this. He did not know what was going on. Obama, on the other hand, was a was a very willing participant. He knew exactly what was going on. He basically bailed out the very bankers who had swindled disproportionately African Americans, which is a key point, right? He bailed out those very bankers instead of fixing the problem, uh, giving homeowners a haircut on their on their mortgages, uh, which would have revived buying power, and we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now, economically speaking. He just threw money at the banks told uh, the, the borrowers that he couldn't give them money because it would invite moral hazard, meaning that it would encourage them not to pay their debts in the future, which is just ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I'll go on record, and I'm sure, you know, it might lose you some listeners, Sean, but I'll, you know, you can blame it all on me. I'm 57 years old. The first the president I was born under was Lyndon B. Johnson, um, the president who was kind of the first who I remember in a sort of political way was Ronald Reagan. And in a materialist standpoint, from a material standpoint, from my material losses, right? Uh, Barack Obama was the worst in my lifetime, and I think he was hired to do that because he was basically he was basically elected uh, at the same historical moment as when FDR was elected. But while FDR tried to save capitalism by actually restoring buying power, Obama gave more money to the capitalists, right? So uh, I think you're exactly right. This capitalist culture, this uh, celebrity culture, protects people like Obama. And it also, again, part of that dumbing down process where we can't have real discourses about uh, about the, the conditions that are really, are literally killing us right now, right? I mean, the United States is a mess. There's no clear way out of this uh, situation. And a big reason is because we can't produce the knowledge. And I, I'm speaking particularly of black people here, right, because we have... You know, speaking about, you know, the, the, the black journalists who are on TV right now mourning Queen Elizabeth, we can't produce the knowledge that we need if we are concerned with the white gaze. It's just that simple. We can't produce knowledge that's useful to us as a people if we are so, uh, we're, 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 we're held hostage by the white gaze, right? Which always centers white people, right? I don't hate white people. I hate my oppressor. But many of them are white, and it's certainly a product of a white settler culture, right? And, and so this worship of Obama is very, very much based, uh, it's very much, um, uh, based on the settlers' need to alibi their crimes, right? That's what Obama represents. And let me say this, Sean, and I, I'll be the first to say this. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have conversations with these people, obviously. But that unveiling of the presidential portrait, right, everything about that, when you talk about scripted, as you were just talking about how so much of our public life is scripted, that was a 
That was testing the waters for a Michelle Obama presidential run. I have no doubt about that. I would be, I would be not shocked, but I would be surprised if in 2024 the presidential election is not a contest between uh, Donald Trump and and uh, uh, what's the what's the what's the man's name in my in Florida? Um, DeSantis. Yeah, DeSantis against uh, I would I would guess Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom. That I would be surprised <laughs> if that's not what we see going into the 2024 election. And again, the cult of celebrity, right? These aren't people who are accomplished. They've not done anything. They don't have any kind of policy platforms that are uh, that should encourage us. They're just celebrities. So yeah, I, I you know again I agree with you 100. percent Yeah, and I mean I don't think you're that off base with that because I think it was the 2020. I can't remember if it was the 2020 election or the 2016. Election. It may have been 2016, but either way, I remember that it was being like, you know, floated somewhat half jokingly about a possible Michelle Obama run. And then at the time, I was like, I, I mean, I could see it because she is uh, stupidly popular. And, and I mean, more popular in some cases than actual um, elected Democrat Party officials. And so, I mean, you know, that that ticket that you're talking about, a Michelle Obama Gavin Newsom ticket. I mean, hey, it might just be the shot in the arm they need because Lord knows they don't have a lot of uh, headliners in, in that uh, party to be begin with just two years away from 2024 but we've got a caller on the line here ben tell us what's on your mind uh, no i just had a question uh, for for the gentleman i you know respect your opinion i respect his opinion but i wanted at least two or three examples of specifics of what types of wealth that you say uh blacks lost under obama more than any other uh, president and so now I'll get the uh, answer off the air, but I do thank you and I listen to you all the time. Well, thank you, Ben. Appreciate you listening and calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, John Jeter, your thoughts? Well, the, the, the types of wealth, there's only one really, right? Uh, for, for blacks, it's, it's, house, it's uh, a ownership. And so I don't know what the numbers were. I think there was somewhere up near 60% of blacks owned their homes uh, uh, before Obama. And now the number is 44%. Most of that loss occurred during the subprime uh, housing crisis. So it wasn't, it wasn't Trump. Although Trump continues the very same policy, don't get me wrong. But that was Obama uh, who, who was responsible for that loss of ownership. So you see cities like, for instance, Detroit, uh, which used to have more, uh, uh, you know, see that is, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, uh, entirely black. Uh, and they used to have more black homeowners in Detroit. A great percentage of the black homeowners, black uh, residents own their homes in Detroit than any other city. And now I believe that figure is, is, is less than half. Right. And so what's happened is that people have lost their homes through a variety of means, by the way. Uh, they've lost their jobs, and so they can't uh, afford to pay the mortgage. Uh, these rising utility rates is a way in which uh, you see um, uh, cities are, 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 are confiscating people's homes. Uh, the subprime mortgages, which, of course, was fraud. Now, that's not my term. That is a term used by the FBI to describe 60% of all uh, subprime mortgages, and this is something that continues, by the way. Where these subprime mortgages weren't—they weren't criminalized or outlawed, right? Uh, and so, uh, this is the main way in which blacks lost wealth was through home ownership uh, and the ability, sort of the, the state colluding with the banks to um, uh, 
uh, defraud homeowners and specifically black homeowners. They targeted black people so that if you made uh, a, a homeowner who made uh, who makes two hundred or a household a black household that makes two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year was more likely to get a subprime mortgage than was a white. Uh, uh, household that made $30,000 a year. So they were targeting blacks based on their wealth. It wasn't a matter of their credit scores. They were looking to rip off black people who they knew had some means, right? This is what I'm talking about. We never talk about this. And so, and let me just say this, and I don't mean to get too far in the weeds here, but it's just important for people to know. I don't think people understand even to this day that what happened uh, during the subprime mortgage crisis, typically when you have an asset bubble and it bursts, the way that it's been dealt with, uh, you know, for for decades, right, is that you shave off a portion of the debt, which means that you know, for which would have meant during the subprime mortgage crisis, it would have those mortgages would have gone down, they would have gone down, allowed people to stay in their homes, but also giving them money to pay off to to buy stuff, right, to buy goods and services, which is how the economy. Uh, functions, right? You need consumer demand for the economy to function. And also, you throw uh, the the criminal bankers in jail. Um, Reagan and, and Bush, uh, Daddy Bush, threw, I think, 200 bankers in jail for the savings and loan crisis, which is only a fraction as large as the subprime uh, housing crisis. So uh, this is the way in which Obama has uh, 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 alibied uh, theft by white capitalists. He's alibied this uh, kleptocracy, and he's expanded it, right? And so we see what's going on now in Ukraine, which was something, uh, the, 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 the coup in Ukraine, uh, toppling a, an elected government, democratically elected government, was done on Obama's watch. We see this expansion into Libya, which is basically uh, a, a coup engineered by, or a civil war engineered by Goldman Sachs, so they could take uh, uh, Libya's wealth at the height of the uh, Great Recession. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, if we just look at the sort of the material facts, you know, if we just, you know, I, I loathe Obama just as a as a black man who's I think I think I'm three years younger than Obama. I loathe him. I I I, I know people like him who think they're the smartest brother in the room and they ain't read nothing, right? Uh, but but take the, put that to the side, right? From a material standpoint, we are we we basically black people, 42 million black people. We own no more now than we did in 1619 when we got here. So that that's the point I'm making. Definitely, we got another caller on the line here. Mo, tell what's on your mind. Uh, thank you, and thanks for taking my call. It's always a delight to talk to the heir apparent of uh, none other than Glenn Ford, and I will continue to to yeah. I'm in the of reading uh, the Black Agenda. Uh, now, which is a great, great read. I would even suggest the former colleague to possibly uh, read as well. And to your point, in terms of what you you were discussing regarding uh, Obama, I would suggest, too, to go back and watch the testimony of uh, our congressional hearings with Marcy Kaptur in in 2009, uh, essentially implicating Goldman Sachs and their involvement in the uh, mortgage crisis that uh, essentially Barack Obama was tied into. And then secondly, along those same lines, uh, a gentleman by the name of of, uh, Michael Froman, who attended law school with Obama, who was with Citigroup, who was responsible for actually selecting every cabinet appointee uh, by uh, 
the, the, the former administration. And the final point is that uh, it's just incredibly disappointing. Uh, you look at, uh, we start looking at the Queen, uh, as uh, Mr. Jeter so aptly described the involvement in Ukraine, uh, again, that took place under uh, Obama's watch, the involvement of, of, of Victoria Nuland, who was tied into Project for a New American Century, and, 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 and uh, Biden being recognized as the commissar of the Ukraine. And, it, and, and it's just incredibly disappointing knowing that these African countries that was under or that were under the yoke of imperialism, uh, there's even a picture uh, that shows Putin uh, training the likes of Samora Michelle in the bush in uh, Mozambique. And wow. something that was never reported in the U.S. press, uh, you had Ethiopians, thousands of Ethiopians at the Russian embassy during the start of the war in Ukraine, volunteering to fight for uh, 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 Russia. Because if you look historically, Russia has never had an African country colonized in the history of, of, of Russia. So it's this due time that, that we become just better thinkers. And I would say, as you guys so aptly described, a lot of that has taken place on our, our inability to really think concretely has, has taken place under, under that, that Obama administration. So we will never move forward until we hold that, that former administration responsible. So thanks for taking my call, and I'll take your comments off the air. Well, thank you, Mo. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, John, your thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, I, well, first of all, let me say thank you again to Mo, who uh, uh, continues to compare me to Glenn Ford. I'm not sure it's, it's, uh, it's fair, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Uh, but more importantly, I think what he's saying, and I didn't know a lot of that stuff about the Putin, the story of the, the, the picture of Putin with the Mozambican uh, independence hero, Samoa Michelle, uh, the first husband of uh, Nelson Mandela's widow. Uh, she wanted to marry Nelson Mandela after uh, um, um, Samoa Michelle was killed by the apartheid uh, South Africa, almost certainly, in a uh, they shot down his airplane. But but yeah, I, I just think that so much of what he said is exactly on point, right? We don't we don't hold Obama accountable, and that's really where we've fallen short, right? We 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 no longer have the intellectual resources uh, where we can hold people accountable for their crimes against us, and. and you know, there's always this sort of discussion uh, because people don't really have much of an argument to proffer with this idea, well, Obama couldn't have been the president for just black America. Well, the point is that uh, everything turned on his treatment of black America, right? We are devoid of buying power. Our economy is devoid of buying power because they robbed blacks first, right? And so if I don't have money, how am I going to go? Even if we just talk about a 
working capitalist model, uh, you know, that's built on exploitation. It depends on workers having buying power. Well, if I don't have black buying power as a black man, who's going to buy, uh, you know, the white business owners' uh, goods and services, right? So everything turns on the mistreatment of the the exploitation of black people, and that's what we don't. We we just don't have the. We don't have the bandwidth anymore to deal with this. We need to sort of begin to produce knowledge because so much of what we are talking about is what the white is what the is what uh, uh, the, the the sons and daughters, the descendants of the slave owners, are telling us to talk about. So we're talking about uh, uh, you know Queen Elizabeth dying. Why aren't we talking about the fact that Joe Biden is starving Af- Afghans right now? After he's stolen their money, right? Why are we talking about the United States is stealing Syrian oil? They're taking it, right? The United States has been uh, the the parliament in Iraq has, I believe, a few times, but certainly once they have ordered the United States military to leave Iraq. We're still there. Why aren't we talking about these things, right? And it's to our detriment. And 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 I think at a certain point we're going to find ourselves in a hole that we really can't safely dig out from, right? The only answer is conflict. Uh, and we're still approaching that point. We're just, uh, we're in a, and, and, and honestly, I'll say, and you do see other countries which are in very similar forms of distress, and many times much worse because, of course, the United States has the international reserve currency, so we can always, uh, well, not always, but we can print our way out of a lot of our crises. Uh, not anymore. We can't do that. But, uh, uh, print money to get out of our crisis. But, but now you have a situation where you see all these countries that are beginning to question, uh, the United States hegemony. Uh, you see that the Czech Republic, even though it was a lot of right wing fascists, uh, uh, but they had a protest last weekend, I think, against, uh, NATO. You see in Argentina, they're out in the streets and they're protesting, uh, the relationship between Argentina and the IMF. Same thing in South Africa where they're out in the streets. They're calling for things like a national bank. These are conversations that are are stillborn in the United States, and until we start to have them, we're just really uh, we're really caught in the spider's web, and the spider is closing in on us. Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the material, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Messing up my own uh, catchphrase there, but uh, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. John Jeter is here as we continue. And John, underlying a lot of our discussion today has been really sort of the plight and conditions of poor and working people here in the U.S. And you recently published a a piece on Patreon noting about how um, congressional Democrats Democrats recently introduced um, uh, 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 full employment, basically, a job guarantee uh, for every event who wanted one. And uh, you sort of talked about the history of legislation like this and about how once upon a time it would have gone a great way 
to uh, uh, address a lot of the material issues facing poor and working people here in the U.S. But as this kind of, uh, you know, similarly inspired legislation stands today, it doesn't actually or it wouldn't actually put people in a position to make uh, the kind of living wage that they need, even in some of the most uh, inexpensive places to live in the U.S. And so I was hoping you could tell us more, not only about this piece from um, the Democrats in Congress, but uh, sort of the lineage of this uh, kind of legislation. Yeah, I, I don't think that any Democrats have reintroduced this legislation, but I know that uh, three very high-profile scholars, including William Darity uh, at uh, North Carolina, uh, Duke, I'm sorry, um, um, and who, I, who I, I, I've never met, but I'm sure is a good man. I've heard very good things about. Uh, and Derek Hamilton, who is also a brother at the New School, is a third um, academic. And I, I'm just I'm missing his name. Uh, he's, he's he's the white professor of the three, and I'm just missing his name. Is that I, Sam Darity? Yeah, thank you. Yes, I hope that's not closing its potential. But they have proposed this for a matter a number of years now, uh, a, a basically a full um, full employment uh, where the, basically the federal government would create an agency that would employ anyone who can't find work in the private sector uh, at an average rate, I think, of eleven dollars, and I think they said eleven dollars and sixty eleven dollars and seventy cents an hour, or something like that. Um, uh, this is an old idea, right? It was first introduced in 1945 by uh, the the Roosevelt administration. Um, did not pass because they they got a Republican Congress, I think, right at that moment. Uh, and it was introduced again by Senator uh, Hubert Humphrey, the, the former vice president, known as the Liberal Lion, out of Minnesota, and um, Augustus Hawkins, who was one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, and they introduced the bill that had a lot of promises supported by people like Martin Luther King. The idea was supported by people like Martin Luther King, and then after he died, Coretta jumped in and, and offered her full support. And many people, the unions were very supportive. And it would have been a game changer in 1976. Uh, the Democrats, it was the centerpiece of their uh Elect of their political, of their uh, electoral legislative agenda, uh, and they hoped that what they could do is it was an election year in 1976. Um, the Democrats hoped that they could pass it, that Gerald Ford would veto it, and then that would help them elect Jimmy Carter, who would then uh, sign it into law. It didn't quite work out that way because, uh, well, a lot of reasons, but the main reason was that both liberal and conservative economists like Milton Friedman and then liberal economists like uh, John Maynard, um, not, I'm sorry, um, uh, Galbraith, John, John uh, Kenneth Galbraith, opposed it. They said it would, it would spark inflation. What might, there's some truth it might have, right? But it would have been in the form of, of rising wages for workers, which is always a good thing. Uh, so anyway, this bill did not pass. It would have been a game changer because it was a different America in 1975, 1976, even though it was starting to change, by which I mean uh, nearly 40% of the workforce was organized, were belonged to, you, to labor unions. Uh, the workers commanded uh, more than half of GDP. Uh, and so this would have been a tool to help workers grab more power, right? Now, and, and, and my point in writing this story 
was that we need a class analysis. We need two things, right? This is very different. This is not like uh, what we're seeing in a lot of other countries, like South Africa or like Argentina. I mean, it is, but it's not. And what I mean by that is that it's racial capitalism, right? So we need a racial analysis, but we also need a class analysis. And the class analysis, what it tells us is, uh, you know, what Marx would tell us is that um, this situation, the economic situation, the political economy, is fluid, right? And so you will often hear the adage that you'll hear communists talk about, you can't dip your, uh, you can't swim the same river twice, right? Because it's, it's fluid, right? And so the point I was making was just that we need more imagination. We need scholars who are more familiar with Marx. I don't think you need to be a Marxist, right? Um, uh, I don't, I don't think you, but you need to be familiar with his ideas, I think, because it is the preeminent critique in the world of capitalism. And so you need to understand this situation is moving and we need, uh, 2022 solutions to 2022 problems. And what happened in 1976 can't inform us can inform our policies, but we can't just replicate that, right? Uh, and, and I mentioned, I think this was so important, I mentioned an Al Jazeera story about a woman who worked 40 hours a week plus at a fast food restaurant, I'm not sure which one, and she was in Huntsville, Alabama, and she was homeless. She and her four children, her husband, they were homeless, and she made more than eleven seventy an hour, um, like twelve dollars an hour. Uh, and Hudson, Alabama, is both the cheapest city in the country, at least at that time. Uh, I think it was done maybe a year ago, but it was the cheapest city in the country. But at the same time, uh, they had full employment. Full employment is typically measured as somewhere between three and four percent unemployment. And uh, Huntsville is lower than the national average. It was like at three percent. And so it, it wasn't a jobs problem; it was a wages problem, right? And beyond that, there are no labor unions. There were almost forty percent of the workforce was organized in 1976 when Humphrey Hawkins was introduced. Today, I think I think the civilian workforce is less than 10%. Overall, I think we're at about 10 or 11%. So it's a very different America. We, we, you know, we need to understand we can't swim the same river twice. We need original thinkers. Again, freed from the white gaze. I mean, these professors, I'm sure they mean very well. These scholars, I'm sure they mean very well, but they are, to some extent, held hostage by the academy. And the academy, uh, the Marxist economist Richard Wolff is fond of telling the story that he got his Ph.D. by attending three of the preeminent uh, universities in the country, uh, Stanford, Yale, and Harvard. I can't remember which order, but he had to attend all those schools to obtain his Ph.D. He says at, at, at no point in time during his education was he required to read a single word of Karl Marx, written by Karl Marx. This, I think, is the problem. Again, we're, you know, we're right back to where we started, this dumbing down, this 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 depletion of the radical imagination, uh, and this and this misunderstanding of our situation and and the ways to fix it. Yeah, definitely. Also, by the way, that was um, William uh, Darity Jr. Uh, that, that it was. I think I said Sam Darity earlier for some reason. But uh, yeah, and I think that um, 
it, 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 this really connects to a much deeper issue that we see uh, within this declining capitalist system at this point, uh, John, in the sense that we see any number of, you know, uh, reforms or, you know, half measures, quarter measures, partial measures, however we want to parse them, that uh, superficially seem like they may um, address some of these critical issues, whether we're talking about inflation or student loan debt or all these sorts of things, but they really don't. And it's not, uh, I don't think it's an accident that that's the case, right? I mean, it seems to me that, um, I mean, particularly on, on the part of the Democrats, they have to have something to hang their hat on that at least looks like they're addressing the conditions of the people that they consider their base because we're making our way steadily towards um, the midterms. And in two years, of course, another uh, uh, presidential election. But in reality, looking at how these things um, play out in substance and how they play out in real time, truthfully, they're, they're really designed to protect those same a moneyed interest, those same capitalist interests. This is the ruling class helping to uh, protect itself while making the rest of us think that they're helping us. You know what I mean? So this is the shell game that uh, 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 so many of us uh, live under in our experience under this uh, uh, racist capitalist system, because I think the ruling class also understands that if they're perceived as doing nothing about these issues, well, then that sets the stage for resistance and political dissent. And uh, uh, we just can't have that. And so, you know, ultimately, John, in our last few minutes here, I mean, it really does seem like a lot of what we're seeing coming from different wings of the ruling class at this point are all just a part of uh, that class trying to uh, retain its power and really uh, protecting itself from uh, the overwhelming numbers of poor working and oppressed folks. No, it's exactly right. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, the, the great late uh, African American writer, Lorraine Hansberry. I can't remember the exact quote, but she talks about how the, 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 there's a natural tendency for people, Americans even, to uh, sort of find comfort in each other, to to talk to each other, to work together, to collaborate, and that and that the ruling class. Uh, the Joe Bidens and the Donald Trumps and the Barack Obamas, uh, their everything that they do is centered on dividing workers from another. And of course, the chief way they do that is through race and racism and inculcating racism. And so, you know, you ask yourself, why do we continue to see black men being shot, uh, arrested, beaten in the streets who are not resisting, who are in handcuffs many times? Why do we continue to see that? Well, it's because the the ruling class wants that, right? Because as long as we think that the problem is each other and not them, then the problem will continue. And it's as simple as that. that that's why the system is wholly unresponsive to black pain and black suffering and black death. Uh, and, you know, people will fight me on that. But all you have to do is, is believe your eyes, right? Believe what you see. Nothing has changed, says George Floyd. No, the only thing that's changed is that we see resistance movements happening, particularly in places like St. Louis. We see these resistance movements, movements uh, start to take shape, but they st- we still have the same situation on the ground. Uh, and we still have white racism, as George Jackson said, which is the biggest barrier to, uni- to a united working class. Uh, and so these are truths that are uh, irrefutable, immutable, uh, and, um, and yet left unsaid by... Most of our best and brightest, our so-called best and brightest.
Yeah, and I mean, I think another consequence emerging out of the uh, George Floyd moment where there were millions of people in the streets rebelling against racism is a doubling down by the state. I mean, case in point, Joe Biden giving $37 billion more billion to the cops. And so, again, this whole protection piece comes in. Well, we thank you so much, John Jeter, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today and this week. Can run by any means necessary on radio, but you can watch it in D.C. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.